Dear Heavenly Father, we do just thank you for this day, and we thank you for the opportunity given us to come and to look into your word. What a privilege that is, Father. And Lord, we would just pray today uh, that people would remain safe. And uh, also, Lord, we would just pray today that you might be glorified. And Father, we would also pray that your promise would hold true, that your word would not return void. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, today we're going to continue looking at our introduction uh, to the doctrine of life. And it's, it's pretty interesting because today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. Sanctity of Life Sunday. And so that, that really fits well with this idea of the introduction uh, to the doctrine of life. Now, of course, we're going to be talking about physical life some today, uh, but we're not going to necessarily be focusing in on it totally as much as we normally do on Sanctity of Life Sunday. But one thing I will remind you is that at Faith Baptist Church, every week is Sanctity of Life Sunday because we don't let uh, the government tell us what we can and, or cannot preach. We go by what the Bible tells us what we can preach or what we are supposed to preach. But let's go ahead and let's get into our text in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. If you follow along as I read, it says in Genesis 2, verses 1 through 7. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth. And then... Excuse me, and there was no man to till the ground. But in the midst uh, uh, went, it went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and the breath, uh, and breathed into the, his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Here we see uh, that this is the creation account of man. Now, this is, once again, expanding upon what I talked about in Genesis 1, 27 through 20, or 26 through 28, that we looked at last week quite a bit. And we're going to go back to that passage uh, this week also. But the first thing I want us to see here is that God set apart a day. Now, I know you're sitting there wondering, what in the world does that have to do with life? What in the world does that have to do with life? Now, it doesn't necessarily pertain directly to the doctrine of life, but what it does pertain to is that it comes out of life, and this is something that is vital for us to recognize. Let's look at verses 1 through 3, once again here in Genesis chapter 2. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Rest was part of God's intention. God's intention was for us to have rest. Rest was part of God's plan. Rest is part of God's creation. And rest, understand something here, and this is where it starts to get tied into the, the doctrine of life. That is that rest is separate from death and sin. Rest is separate from death and sin. Now, this is a really interesting idea when we consider this, that rest is separate from death and sin. Rest is still part of life, even before sin entered the world. Now, this is an interesting context, uh, uh, con 
excuse me, an interesting concept to explore. It isn't directly tied to the doctrine of life, but but it is in relation when we understand this here. The Sabbath was part of God's design, not for death, but for life. Often, I, I think of this anyway, that, that rest or being tired in, in that idea that rest is tied to death. You know, we go out there and we work and we think that, first of all, we think sometimes we're going to work to death. But, but the reality of it is, is, is that's probably not the case. But when we go and we think about this idea of rest, I, I often tie it to death. We think about it when it comes in, in relationship to death. And in fact, we think about, well, we can rest when we're dead and we can, we, we can think about all this kind of stuff here. But rest is actually something that is tied to life biblically. It's something that is tied to life biblically. It's tied to God's creation. It was something that God said is very good. It wasn't that death entered the world. It wasn't that sin entered the world and death through sin. It wasn't that that then God said, okay, now you need to rest because your bodies are going and they're going to wear out and all this stuff, and so now you need rest. But it is that God goes and he says rest is tied and is a part of life. Rest is tied to and is a part of life. Rest is separate from death and is actually tied to life. This is something that, that, that just blows my mind when I stop and I, I, I think about this because I often think about it in the opposite way. But often we scoff at this idea. And in fact, I would say that often we believe in only nine of the Ten Commandments. And we go and we, we, we try to make all these excuses for the Sabbath day or, and just try to pretend that only nine of them exist. But we go and we see that even before the Ten Commandments, God set apart a day in Genesis chapter 2 for a day of rest. God goes and says, here, I'm setting apart this day. What one incredible thing to think about, uh, because we often go and we, we would say that, that the Sabbath day is part of the Levitical law, but it's separate from the moral law because it's, it's not, it's, they, they, we don't go and, Jesus doesn't mention it in uh, his Sermon on the Mount. He doesn't mention the Sabbath on the Sermon on the Mount, so people would go and say it's part of the Levitical law and not part of the moral law. But here we go and we see it must be part of the moral law because it's God's design and order for creation that they rest. How much more should we take rest serious? How much more should we take setting aside a day, consecrating a day for God after sin and death have entered the world Since God told us to do that before sin and death entered the world. We need to understand that a day set apart is God's plan for life. It isn't something that death necessitates. It's not something that death brought into this world. It's something that God brought through life. We need to make sure we're setting aside a day and giving it to God. We also set apart, uh, instead of the, the last day of the week, instead of Saturday, the Sabbath part, the seventh day there, we go and we set apart the first day of the week. Now, why do we do this here? Well, we're following the prescription that was given in Acts chapter 20, verse 7. In Acts chapter 20, verse 7, it says this. Now, on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, uh, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. Now, now, uh, first of all, I want to make a couple notes here about this. It's the first day of the week that they met together, that the early church, and so we take that as a prescription that we are to meet on the first day of the week. But I also want us to recognize here that Paul preached until midnight, so this is going to be a really, really long message 
Uh, I mean, I've got like, you know, seven more hours to preach here to get till midnight. Now, we're not really going to go until midnight. Um, but, but we see here that, that it is the first day of the week. And then we also remember that Christ rose again on the first day of the week. He rose again on Sunday. And so we come and we worship here on Sunday. We set aside Sundays for the Lord to go and to serve the Lord, to go and to recharge, to go and to, to hear God's message, to go and to get right with God, to go and to set that aside, to consecrate that day as what it's talking about here in Genesis chapter 2. And what we need to remember about this is that a set-apart day, it comes from life, it doesn't flow from death, but it comes directly from life. It is God's design that you come to church once a week to recharge, to refocus, to get recommissioned for the ministry that God has for you throughout the week. See, when you come to church, it's not that you're coming to church to come and to, to, to do ministry. Now, you might do some ministry while you're here at church. There's no doubt about that. But really what church is about is you getting equipped for the ministry. It's that you would be equipped to do the ministry throughout the week, that you are getting spiritually rested. Now, you should go get physically rested, too. That's why, why Sunday afternoon naps are absolutely vital. You need to go take a Sunday afternoon nap. But, but we come here, you come to church to come and to get equipped to go do ministry throughout the other six days of the week. Now, we touched on this here a few weeks ago, uh, but I'm going to go ahead and bring this back up because I think this brings us to a major, major issue within the church culture today. See, within the church culture today, instead of going and getting equipped to go do the ministry here at church, and instead of going and viewing it as people are ministering to, to, to me, they go and they view it as people are ministering to me, and this is the ministry, this is the only ministry, as how people go and they view church, they become consumers. Now, you ought to consume when you come to church. You ought to feast on the Word of God. But after you feast on the Word of God, you ought to go and take it and do something with it. Apply it to your life, first of all. Apply it to your life, first of all. When, when sin is preached against, when the sin in your life is preached against, repent. Repent from that sin. Change your ways. Then, also go and take the equipping that comes with this. Go and, and take what the Word of God says and go and apply it and go and minister to other people throughout the week. That's how it's supposed to work. It's not supposed to be that, hey, I'm going to come and, and on Sunday go and do my Christian thing and go and get, 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 get fed and, and go and consume all this stuff, but never go and do anything. That creates an obese Christian, an obese Christian. One who is who's morbidly obese and, and goes and he has this eating disorder of going and just eating and eating and eating all the spiritual food, but never has any output. That's a problem. That's a problem. That's not how God designed it. God designed for you to set aside a day, to set aside a day, to be equipped, to be recharged to be refocused on Christ, not so that you could go and just simply get distracted on Monday, but so that you could go and minister to others Monday through Saturday. That's what God designed, and that's what it's talking about here in Genesis chapter 2, that we ought to have a day here, a day of rest. And this is tied, of course, to life. This isn't tied to death. This isn't tied to, to sin. This is tied to life. Perhaps this isn't as mind-blowing for you as it is to me as I went and I realized this this week as I was studying out the scripture and realized that rest 
isn't tied to death, it's tied to life. It would make more sense to me if life would be tied to death, or excuse me, if, if rest would be tied to death. Because think about it. Does rest generally come when you're feeling the, the most lively and active? No, it generally comes when you're worn out, when, when, when you're tired, when you're feeling broken down. But God went and he said, no, rest is something that is tied to life. The set-apart day and rest bring up a point that is necessary to understand also about life. And that is, because God is self-existent, we are dependent upon him. We looked at this quite a bit last week. That was our main point last week, is that God is the self-existent one. He said, I am that I am, he told Moses. And Jesus says, before Abraham was I am. We see here that God is the self-existent one. He doesn't need anyone to live. He didn't need anyone to be here. In the beginning, God, the Bible starts with this presupposition of God because God is the self-existent one. There was nothing before God. Our life, therefore, is dependent upon God. He is the source of life, the source of physical life, the source of spiritual life. God is that source. We are dependent upon God, and there is no greater reminder that we are dependent upon God than having a mandate of rest. If you never had to rest, where does that kind of, what kind of a mindset does that put you in? It puts you in the mindset that, I, well, I don't need rest. I don't need anything because I'm perfect. I'm good. I, I don't need anything. Here, I, I'm good. I can go do it. I, I can rely upon my own strength. I don't need rest. That's, that's what it, it, it puts you in that kind of a mindset of one that believes that it is dependent upon self rather than being dependent upon God. And we must, we must recognize, especially as we understand the doctrine of life, because the whole foundation of the doctrine of life is that God is self-existent and life flows from him. We must realize that we are dependent upon God. We are dependent upon God. Our physical life comes from God. Our spiritual life comes from God. It flows from him. He is the, the one who has that. He is the one who has physical life. He is the one who has spiritual life within him. The second thing I want us to see here today, and this is where we really get into the, the, the doctrine of life, and of course, as I mentioned, it is Sanctity of Life Sunday, we are going to be seeing some on the physical life, this idea of physical life and the importance of it as we see the creation of man. Uh, but I want us to notice the living part of man in the image of God. In verse 7 of Genesis chapter 2, it says this, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. Then I also want us to go to verse 27 of chapter 1 in Genesis. So turn a page back to Genesis 1:27. It says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Man is made in the image of God. Man is made in the image of God. It was not necessarily a physical image. Have you ever noticed how people look dramatically different? People look dramatically different. God's image isn't referring to a physical image, although Christ took on flesh, and so he does have the physical image of a man. Uh, it tells us that, and you, 
you know, obviously throughout the New Testament and the Gospels, but immediately I think of Philippians chapter 2 that it tells us that Christ came in the appearance of a man, uh, that he put on flesh. Christ became flesh. Uh, John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So there is that aspect of it. But, but the thing here when we see that we are created in the image of God, we see here that it was, first of all, a mental likeness a mental likeness and a moral likeness that we are created in the image of God. We are created in a mental likeness and also a moral likeness. And image and likeness are synonymous in the Hebrew. You can't really tell the difference. So I'm going to use those two words synonymously here. Uh, and that, that is that idea of image and likeness. We are made in a mental likeness. And this is from Lectures in Systematic Theology uh, by Thiessen. And he says, God is a spirit. The human soul is a spirit. The essential attributes of a spirit are reason, conscious, and will. A spirit is rational, moral, and therefore also a free agent. In making man after his own image, therefore God endowed him with those attributes, which belong to his own nature as a spirit. Man is thereby distinguished from all other inhabitants of the world and raised immeasurably above them. Man is made, man is made in the likeness of God in that we can reason, that we have a conscience, and that we have a will. That's what it's talking about here. We are made in the image of God mentally here because we, we can reason we, we have a, a conscious here. Uh, there, there is something that, that, that comes, which is interesting. We're going to talk about in just a moment. And, and, of course, we do have a will. We do have a will also. And so this is important to understand. We can reason around, our, uh, we can reason around us. Have you ever noticed that dogs don't have much reason? When we consider the difference between a man and an animal, uh, we can reason around us. We have reason around us. We can go and understand and decipher different things that go around us. So you ever notice that dogs generally uh, don't have much reason? They generally have uh, to learn things the hard way, and we and they are totally in, uh, instinctual as opposed to intellectual. Uh, dogs are generally instinctual rather than uh, intellectual. I, I think of, of different times of observing dogs and the, the, the different things that they do. In fact, uh, we had one dog growing up. Uh, his name was Starsky, uh, the, the dog. Uh, he was a, a, a Sheltie, and, and he was, might I say, about the dumbest dog I've ever met. He was about the dumbest dog I've ever met. Beautiful dog. He was a Sheltie Blue Merle. Beautiful, beautiful dog. He had one brown eye, one blue eye. Interesting dog. Interesting dog. But that dog, he, he, he had a, a chase drive. I mean, he didn't really have too much of a chase drive, but, but he was much more in, in, in instinctual instead of intellectual. And I saw him on numerous occasions run into chairs and walls and all kinds of other people and all kinds of stuff because he was chasing something. And so he didn't pay attention. He didn't reason to those things that were around him. He wasn't being intellectual. He was being instinctual. Uh, we also have a will that we can choose to go against our reason or with reason or halfway with reason. We can choose. We have a will as people. We can choose to either go with that reason as we go and we reason something, or we can choose to go against that reason, or we can choose to go halfway sometimes with that reason. But, but we can choose. We have a will. We can understand these things, and we can do these different things. We also have a conscience. 
Uh, did Adam and Eve have a conscience? That's a good question here. Did Adam and Eve have a, a good conscience? I would say this. They had the capacity for a conscience, uh, but it was an undeveloped conscience because they were innocent, and of course we know the second dispensation is conscience. But it was undeveloped until they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then it became a corrupt conscience. God intended to teach them good and evil uh, he didn't intend for them to stay in their unconfirmed state. Adam and Eve, while they were in the Garden of Eden, they had an unconfirmed disposition towards God. They had not confirmed that they would follow God, and they had not confirmed that they would rebel against God. And until they had been tested, that could not be confirmed. And, and so when they were tested here, now God, he desired to teach them. He desired to teach them uh, about good. He desired to teach them about evil. He didn't want them to eat of the tree. He didn't want them to learn through disobedience. He wanted them to learn through obedience. So I would say they had the, the capacity for a conscience. They had the capacity for a conscience. And when they ate of the fruit, they, they became and had a corrupt conscience then. But God did intend to teach them between good and evil. Even in their unconfirmed state, he had that intention in their life. He didn't want them to stay in the dark. He didn't want them to stay not knowing the difference. It wasn't that he didn't want them to know or have that knowledge of good and evil. It was that he wanted them to learn through obedience and not learn through disobedience. But it's not just a mental likeness that we're made in the image of God. It's also that we have a moral likeness that we're made in the image of God. God is righteous. Habakkuk 1.13 says, You are a pure eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on the wicked. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Man was made upright, it tells us in Ecclesiastes 7.29. Truly, this uh, only I have found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. They've sought out many schemes. Man was made good, Genesis 131. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was good. It was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. We were not made with evil within us. And this is important for us to understand. Mankind, Adam and Eve, were not made with evil within them. They weren't made with evil within them. They were made upright. They were made righteous. They were made uh, this idea of, maybe I shouldn't say righteous, but I should say they were made upright and God deemed them as very good. And they needed to confirm that righteousness that they would follow God. But they were not made with evil within them. They were not made with that. So therefore, we had the moral capacity to, to be righteous just as God. So we had a moral likeness with God. Man's moral free agency also plays a role in this moral likeness. His moral free agency, man, we are moral free agents. We are moral free agents, and our moral free agency plays a likeness in the image of God. We recognize Adam and Eve's time in the garden before the fall as being under the dispensation of innocence. And as I mentioned before, uh, they were in an unconfirmed state because they were untested. They were absent from sin, and therefore they were morally pure. This innocence had to be confirmed by a test. And of course, mankind failed the test. And one thing we learned throughout all the different dispensations of mankind is that mankind always fails the test. 
We will always fail the test here uh, when it comes to that. And, and of course, we need grace. We, we, we are moral free agency. We seek out those schemes is what it tells us in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 29. That God has made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. We seek out those schemes. We seek out these things. And, and we can see this here. We can see this even at the very end, in the very last dispensation, in the dispensation of the millennial, of the millennial kingdom, the, the dispensation of kingdom where Christ is ruling, and we have total outward submission to God. We have total outward submission to God, but then Satan is released after a thousand years. He comes uh, back uh, onto this earth. He was bound in hell there for a little while. He comes back, and he goes, and he deceives the nations. And it says, as many as the sand of the sea were deceived. What an incredible thing. They could see Jesus Christ ruling on his throne, and yet they still believe Satan. They still believe Satan. God gave them the moral free agency, Adam and Eve, to choose. To hold any other conviction is to make God the author of sin and death. And this is important for us to realize and to understand. If we do not believe in a moral free agency, we are believing that God, that God is the author of sin and death rather than being the author of life. He is not the God of the Bible if we do not believe in a moral free agency. I want us to also understand here the true living part of man is immaterial. The true living part of man is immaterial. Uh, this is not to devalue physical life. That would be silly, especially to do on Sanctity of Life Sunday. Uh, but this actually, I believe, gives even greater value to physical life. Theologically, we are alive before our bodies are formed. Theologically, we are alive before our bodies are formed. In Jeremiah 1.5, it says this, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Can you know somebody who's, who's not yet living, who hasn't become alive no, you can't know someone. You can't know someone. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. We recognize life at conception as Christians. We recognize life at conception as Christians because it is the soonest we can physically recognize life. We can't know somebody before the womb. We can't know somebody before the womb, but we recognize life at conception as Christians, and we think about this specifically on Sanctity of Life Sunday. We do this because theologically, we are alive before that. Theologically, God can know us before we are even put in the womb. He says so with Jeremiah, and then he informs us in the womb. But, but it is there our soul that, that is alive. It's because we're immaterial. As, as humans, we have an immaterial part. We have a soul that lasts for an eternity. At the moment of conception, mankind is physically alive. If we, argue, excuse me, if we argue from any other premise, we are arguing away from the Bible and what the Bible teaches, and therefore we are arguing against the laws of nature because nature always agrees with nature's God. Nature always agrees with nature's God. So it's not just when we go and we, when people go and make an argument that life begins at some time, physical life begins at some time other than conception. It's not simply that they are just arguing uh, against the Bible. Although they are arguing against the Bible and as Christians, that ought to be enough to reject that argument. But it is also that they are arguing against the laws of nature because the laws of nature never disagree 
with nature's God. Let me give us another example because I, I think that we, we look at this quite, quite a bit, this other example, the one I'm about to give, and, and we go, well, of course, of course that makes sense as Christians, but sometimes we forget this, that it applies to life also. Uh, this same exact premise and the same exact arguments, that idea that nature does not disagree, the laws of nature do not disagree with nature's God. And, and that is this argument when it comes to the idea of gender, this idea when it comes to gender. Nature does not, nature's laws do not disagree with nature's God. God's, and we looked at this here last week, but God tells us in Genesis 1 that he made them male and he made them female. And then we go out and we look at, at the laws of nature. How can you procreate? How can you procreate when you have a man and a man? You can't. How can you procreate when you have a woman and a woman? You can't. You can't do that. It goes against nature's laws. It's not how God designed it. And we go and we say, well, of course, as Christians, of course, as Christians, we understand that and we go, yeah, that makes sense, okay? E even people uh, without the Bible, there are people who, who recognize this and it makes sense. I, I mean, it just, it doesn't fit within any uh, worldview. It doesn't fit in the, the Darwinian worldview. It doesn't fit in, in any worldview other than a humanist worldview that I will do what I want to do. And we go and we say, it goes against nature. And of course it goes against nature's God because the laws of nature always agree with nature's God. And reversed. Male and female as the only two genders goes with God. And of course then they go with the laws of nature because the laws of nature do not, they do not contradict nature's God. The same is true when it comes to physical life, that life is at conception. To deny this is to deny not just God, the word of God, but to deny the nature, the laws of nature. We need to understand that. But it tells us here that man became a living being. In verse 7, of Genesis chapter 2, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. This is the last thing I'd like us to see here this morning. A living being. Now, this word living, uh, it's the Hebrew word haya, haya, and it means, uh, it's a noun meaning a living thing. And it can refer to an animal, a beast, a living thing. And it's the, the basic idea of living. Its common translation is animal or beast. And it's, it's simply referring to the idea of living, like an animal lives. Just, just that idea of, of being moving and having a, a life there. But the next word really gives us an insight as to what man is and what it means when he is living here. See, it says that he's a living, not just living, like the beast but then he's a living being. There's a difference here. There's an adjective that's added to it, and it changes the meaning here. And in the King James here, I think it really says it better, says it more accurately. It says he became a living soul. He became a living soul. Now, this is the word, the Hebrew word, nefesh, nefesh. And it means to breathe, excuse me, it means breath, inner being with thoughts, and emotions. And this is where we see the difference. Our inner being has life. It's not just our outer body that has life, 
but it is our inner being as humans that has life. We are made in the image of God, having a mental and a moral likeness of him. We are made in his image. And this is where we can start to see that not all physical, physical living things have the same value and where we can draw a distinction between the physical living things. This is an interesting place where, where we can come to this because as I mentioned last week, how can we know? How can we know that a human life is of more value than an insect? That a human life is of more value, an innocent human life is of more value than a cockroach? How, how can we understand that? How can we recognize these things? Well, it's because God is the self-existent one. That is the premise of the doctrine of life. And out of the self-existent one flows physical life. He gives physical life to these other things. He is the author of physical life. He is the designer of physical life. He is the maker of physical life. And as the maker of physical life, what does he do? He values life. He doesn't just define it, but he also defines physical life and he gives value to it. And here he tells us that we're not just living like the animals. We're not just a living person like the animals, like all these other beasts that he created, all these other animals and, and, and species and all these other things that God created. We're not just like them. But we're a living being, or like the King James puts it, a living soul. A living soul. We have an inner being. This is where the rubber meets the road. We should value the life of human beings because they are not above, or excuse me, because they are, excuse me, I really messed that one up there, they, because they are above the earth and the beasts in Genesis chapter one. Subdue the earth, have dominion over them, it tells us in Genesis chapter one. We are in value above the earth. We are in value above the animals, this is important for us to recognize because we are made in the image of God, because we are a living breath or an inner being. And this should make us pro-life. This should make us pro-life. Physically, we should be pro-life. Physically, and we think about this, once again, this is Sanctity of Life Sunday. Theologically, there is a difference between man and all of the, the, the animals that are out there and all the rest of creation, mankind is the apex of creation. It wasn't our climate that was the apex of creation. It wasn't the animals that were the apex of creation. It was mankind that is the apex of creation. We are the ones that were made in the image of God. So theologically, we ought to realize this. We must be pro-life physically. To kill an innocent person is to mar the image of God. Now, we will look in a few weeks where killing a guilty person is commanded by God and why it is. And we should abhor, though, the killing of the innocent. We should abhor the killing of the innocent. God hates the shedding of innocent blood. 
God hates the shedding of innocent blood. And as we, we consider this doctrine of life, and it's not just physical life, we're going to get into spiritual life here in just a moment, but as we consider the doctrine of life, there is this hurdle that we cannot get around. We must face this. That is, as Christians, to rightly obey, to rightly apply the doctrine of life, which the Bible, I, I mean, where else can you get the doctrine of life other than the Bible? Where else can we get the doctrine of life? In the beginning, God. It had to come from somewhere. Life had to begin somewhere. It began with God. This is the place to find the doctrine of life. But there is this, this great obstacle that faces us in, in our culture and in our nation. To rightly apply the doctrine of life, we must stand opposed to abortion. To rightly apply the word of God, it's not just that we sit here and we say, oh, I, I'm against abortion, or I wish people would, wouldn't be before abortion, or I wish that, that it would just go away. It's that we must be opposed to abortion. There is no getting around it. If we believe that God hates the shedding of innocent blood, and he tells us that in the book of Proverbs, he hates the shedding of innocent blood. If we believe that mankind is the apex of God's creation, if we believe that mankind was made in the image of God, that it wasn't our climate, that it wasn't the fluffy animals, but that it was mankind, understand something. We must be opposed to abortion. There is no getting around it. It is the theological case. To, to be anything other than opposed to abortion is to rebel against the word of God. It is to be the opposite of what the doctrine of life teaches and what the Bible teaches us about life. God hates the shedding of innocent blood and we should abhor the killing of the innocent. We should stand against it. It shouldn't just be something that we go and we say, well, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pro-life, so, so I'm not going to go and, 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 and abort my child. But it is something that we should go and say, no, this is against the laws of nature. This is against the laws of God. This is against these things. And it doesn't just hurt me. It doesn't just hurt those babies that are being murdered, but it hurts our society as a whole. So therefore, we will stand against it as Christians. That this is the, the only rightful application of Genesis 1 and 2 as it comes to life and understanding how God made mankind. There are plenty of Christians out there who will go and agree with this on a theological standpoint, saying that we should be pro-life. That we should be pro-life. But then they will go and they, they will do all kinds of hermeneutical gymnastics and they will leave out application. They will leave out application as if the Bible doesn't apply, that God tells us a doctrine that we ought to listen to in our life, but we ought not apply it to our life. That is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Of course God gave it to us so that we ought to apply it to our life. Why would we believe that we ought not have application? Why would we believe that it is okay to just have a, 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 a quiet little, little thing here that we go and we say, yeah, I believe this doctrine. Yeah, I'll go and I'll write it down and say that I'm pro-life. No, God says be pro-life. We see here that, that it's this idea that he goes, I made man in my own image. There's a difference. You're the apex of creation. 
In fact, the the form of capital punishment, which we'll look at here in the, the coming weeks, of capital punishment, which is biblical, by the way. It is biblical. It's because innocent life ought to be preserved, but guilty life ought not be. But that is a pro-life stance, is to be in favor of capital punishment. That's why God instituted that, because he says, do something about protecting the innocent. In Genesis chapter 9. But we'll look at that in a few more weeks. We ought to be pro-life, not just physically, but also spiritually. We should be pro-eternal life. Because we have an inner being that will last for an eternity. Some inner beings will last for an eternity in heaven. And some inner beings will die for an eternity in hell. The gospel is the only thing that can save us spiritually. And this is what we need to understand. Whenever we are pro-physical life, and that that is good, we ought to be pro-physical life, I, I just just... Talked at length about that. But we're not rightly pro-physical life if we leave the gospel out, if we're not being rightly pro-eternal life. And what is the gospel? The gospel is, is that Christ died for our sin, that he was buried, proving he was dead, that he rose again on the third day to provide a way of salvation so that we might be saved. We must be pro-eternal life also. Because it's not just that we have a physical body as Christians, but it is that we have an inner being. We are made in the image of God. We will last that inner being or that living soul that we have. We will last forever living in heaven or we will last forever dying in hell. And there is but one escape, from dying in hell for eternity. And that is through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. It is through Christ and through him alone. We must do is what it says in Romans 10, 9, that if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, then thou shalt be saved. Then Romans 10, 13 Continues on with that where it says, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We must call upon God. We must admit that we've sinned. Believe that Christ did raise from the dead and he's the only one that can save us. And we must call upon God and ask him to save us. And we must take that message. We must take that message to others. To truly be pro-life. So we ought not just be pro-physical life. We also ought to be pro-spiritual life. And by the way, anytime we talk about pro-physical life, anytime a conversation comes up about that, it's always an opportunity to tell someone about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I also want to remind us that as God made us the apex of creation, that he made us living souls, living beings, that we should thank the giver of life. God made you, not just physically, but he made your inner being. He gave you life. Thank him. 
You ought to thank him for that life. If you have eternal life today, you're twice born, so you should be even more thankful. Those who are just once born ought to be thankful to God because they have life. They have life. But those of us who are twice born, those of us who have been born again, as it tells us in John chapter 3, we, we have a, a, I mean, I can't even express the great weight of our thankfulness, the great weight that we should have to be thankful. We should go and be thankful to God. But today I want to conclude, and I want to leave us with the understanding that because life flows from God, because he's the only self-existent one, it means that we're dependent upon him. And we're reminded of that when we remember that we ought to rest, that we ought to rest. I also hope that we understand that we are made in the likeness of God, that we are made in the image of God, that we are made in his moral and mental likeness. And that because we are made in his moral and mental likeness, I hope then that we see the image, or excuse me, the value of life, of the image of God, and that spurs us to stand up for the unborn, for the innocent, and that it burdens us also to share the gospel with the once born. We ought to be burdened for the unborn, and we ought to be burdened for the once born as Christians. We ought to care to preserve physical life, and we ought to care to go and to preserve also spiritual life to show others the way to heaven which is through Jesus Christ and him only. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we do just thank you for this day and we thank you for this opportunity that you've given us to come and to look into your word. And Father, we thank you that you made us. We thank you, Father, that you made us in your image, that you made us physically. And Lord, I thank you that you've given us spiritual life also to those who have accepted you as their savior. We praise you for that, Father. Lord, I pray that you'd give us a burden, that you'd give us a passion for the unborn. And Father, that you'd also give us a burden and a passion for the once born. Because Father, flowing from you comes physical life. And flowing from you comes spiritual life. And Lord, I pray that we ought to stand for both, uniting the causes to go and to share the gospel with those who would seek to destroy physical life. Lord, that they might be saved, that they might be changed, and Lord, that they might grow in you. And Lord, we would just pray this would be to your will, not ours. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.